I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Barbican Screen Talks. Hello and welcome to the latest in our series of Barbican Screen Talks. Every month, we share enlightening conversations with some of the world's leading filmmakers and film fans, hand-selected from our archives. This month, we bring you a wide-ranging discussion with one of British cinema's most wide-ranging talents. Lord Richard Attenborough, or Dickie as he was fondly known, was born in Cambridge in 1923. He trained at RADA and had a brief stint on the London stage before the war broke out. Seconded to the newly formed RAF Film Unit at Pinewood Studios, he soon undertook missions all over Europe, filming from the rear gunner's position. His commander at the RAF was Flight Lieutenant John Bolting, who went on to have a significant influence on Attenborough's career. Bolting gave young Dickey his first major film role in 1945's Journey Together, before two years later casting him as the stony-hearted gangster Pinky in the film adaptation of Graham Greene's novel Brighton Rock. That role would become emblematic of Attenborough's early screen career in the 40s and 50s, and a series of parts he memorably describes here as either little spivs or quivering psychopaths on the lower decks of Her Majesty's Navy. But Attenborough was not a man to be typecast, Over his 65-year screen career, he played a squadron leader in The Great Escape, a serial killer in Ten Willington Place, and a dinosaur zoo founder in Jurassic Park. In this conversation from 2004, Attenborough talks to Quentin Fork about working on Brighton Rock. He reveals what motivated him to move behind the lens, directing hits including Oh What a Lovely War and Gandhi and he shares fail-safe advice given by David Lean on the set of his very first feature, In Which We Serve. When Attenborough died in 2014, at the age of 90, he'd amassed an extraordinary range of cinematic experiences, both in Britain and Hollywood. And it's the benefit of all this filmic wisdom that you're about to hear. I'm Eleni Jones, and this is Barbican Screen Talks with Lord Richard Attenborough. Well, what a nice welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us tonight. You sat in the box briefly at the back, at the end of the film. Yeah. What thoughts came flooding back after 57 years? It was a bit over the top, I think. 
<laughs> I, I tell you what is extraordinary, and I don't suppose I've seen it for 40 or 50 years, but the whole tempo of cinema has changed, hasn't it? Television has altered that, absolutely. There were moments where I thought, I, I always have thought that uh, John Bolting, whose first picture really it was, apart from Joan Together, was a quite superb actor's director, insisting always on, on the truth to the uh, greatest possible extent. And he believed, particularly at that time, that the cinema, the screen, had an opportunity of conveying the internal thoughts and attitudes and emotions, which of course you can't do on the, on the stage at all in the same way. And that therefore the whole tempo of the sort of movies that he made, the sort of movies that Carol Reed made, and so on, were essentially cinema. But now with the tempo of television and the fact that you must cut, you must keep the cutting, you cannot hold concentration apparently for a long period of time, it seems slow to me. It seemed too measured, but uh, I don't know whether it was or not. I think it was your life passing before your very eyes, <laughs> perhaps something that along those lines. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned stage, and of course, yeah. you'd actually first played Pinky on stage. I mean, I'm trying yeah. to imagine a stage version of, of Brighton Rock. It was very bad. <laughs> uh, uh, it was Graham, if I'm, my memory's right, and I read your book looked at your book the other night and I think you mentioned that he hated it. In fact, he didn't want me to play in the movie either. So when the movie came along, I mean, in fact, it was bubbling up first as a, as a different kind of film altogether. It was going to be Antony Asquith as a Rattigan script and so on. Correct. And then the Boltings got involved and they were absolutely desperate to have you involved. Yeah. Can you recall that period of when you were then cast for the film? Because it was some years after the play. Uh, I was in the Air Force, and because I was in the Air Force, I was taken out of flying training command uh, just after I'd soloed for the first time. And I was um, posted to Pinewood Studios, where the RF film unit were established. And I remember if you were in flying training command, you wore a little white flash in your cap, and you had to polish the bottoms of your shoes and if an officer went by 20 yards away, you stood to attention and stuck up a salute. No, I mean, it was a sort of madness before you actually got down to the reason you were in the Air Force. And I remember going to Pinewood, being told to report to the officer down that particular corridor, Flight Lieutenant Bolting. And I went and knocked on the door and, uh, and I went in. And out of the corner, uh, door of the bathroom came Flight Lieutenant Bolting doing up his flies. <laughs> so that was my introduction to the Royal Air Force. <laughs> but he, but he, he had seen, it was because of that film called Journey Together that John decided that he thought I should play Brighton Rock. Mm. And, uh, and he and, and Roy, his brother, were, were adamant and, and I, they never em embroiled me in it. But Graham was, of course, uh, deeply involved. In fact, the majority of the script was Graham's. Terry Rattigan wrote and John wrote a bit. But the concept and that the end of the movie, of the, of the record and so on, 
which great uh, green aficionado said was an outrage and ruined his book and so on and so on and so on, was Graham's idea. Was his own oh, ending, which I, I don't know if people agree. I think it's a brilliant yes, end. Yes. Was Green, I mean, were you aware of Green on and around the set when you were no. making the film? No. He came to read-throughs, and I remember him coming on the set three or four times, uh, but he didn't remain on the on the and he saw the film when it was completed, or I think he saw it when it was fine cut. Uh, well, Green, who notoriously kind of hated most of the film versions of his yes. books, apart usually from the ones he'd been involved in yeah, adaptations yeah. himself, actually was very generous about you, and, and despite, after his reservations about yes. you on stage, thought yes. you were extremely good, I think yes. is what he said. He wrote me at my favourite notice of all, people say to you, do you remember your notices? And, and you don't really very often remember your good notices, but you do remember certain notices. And there was a colleague of yours called Leonard Mosley, who wrote for the Express. And he, in reviewing the movie, said, and Richard Atmos Pinky is as close to Graham Greene's character in his book as Donald Duck is to Greta Garbo. <laughs> <coughs> So that is the one review that I have actually pinned up in my office. <laughs> but but Gra Graham was sweetest, and, and I'm so very egotistical, but I'm very proud of it. He just said, for Dickie, the perfect pinky, affectionately, Graham. So I, uh, I thought, well, that's all right. <laughs> you mentioned that review, and I, one of the extraordinary things uh, about the film was some of the... Uh, some of the notices it got, not about the film itself, but about the kind of effect of the film. And yes. I, I must quote, because I think you might be amused to hear, this was the Daily Mirror, which I suppose was the son of its time. Yes. Chuck called Ridge Whitley. Ridge Whitley, yes. Wrote, this was false, cheap, nasty sensationalism. Hollywood has banned the production of gangster films because they give a false impression of life in America. British film studios will have to consider doing the same. Brighton Rock will create abroad a similarly untrue picture of life in Britain. In all sincerity, I say we should produce no more like it. There are 92 minutes of murder, brutality, beating up. Gosh. Um, <laughs> it's important that overseas shouldn't get the impression made by our recent films that we're a nation of toughs who rival in brutality the Chicago gangs in their heyday. Mr. Censor, please note. Yes. So, you know. But, in fact, referring to Green, you'd actually appeared in a Green film earlier, and a film which he actually did hate, yes. um, which was The Man Within, which was yes. his first published novel. Yes. And he didn't like it particularly because he felt it was an attack on his firstborn, is I think how he described it. Yes. Now, I presume that Green didn't come into your life at all during this. This was a much earlier film of yours, of course. Do you have any memories of The Man Within? Some. You were tortured in it, by the way. Yes, I was. I was whipped oh, right. by, by, by Michael Heredgrave, I remember. And it was the first film I made when I came out of the Air Force, and we made it at Shepherd's Bush. It was certainly the first colour film to be made at Shepherd's Bush. I'm not sure whether it was the first colour film in the UK, but it was very, very early. Mm. And all the studios, of course, were rigged in a particular way. And because in those days colour demanded a tremendous amount of light, I mean, it was almost blinding in order to photograph with three-strip coloured film, uh, we had to keep stopping because the heat generated by all these lights set off the sprinklers all the time. <laughs> so we literally would go in and have to work for a couple of hours and then open all the doors and get some fresh air into the place before we could continue. Strong, I always remember, I mustn't tell, nobody remembers Man Within, do they? 
No, good. No, if, if only you'd say you were, it was the most dreadful film. <laughs> and uh, it was directed by a, a cameraman who was the sweetest of men, but had never directed in his life and uh, didn't know how to deal with actors at all. And um, I was scared sideways. And, uh, and I remember very clearly having to play a love scene, which I had never done before. He put me lying on a bed and the leading lady had to come in and lie upon me, which was blush-making for me. I mean, I really, I was so embarrassed, I didn't quite know what to do, but I've, he said that we wouldn't rehearse, he said, because these sort of scenes did need great emotion and played for the first time, and therefore rehearsal would perhaps spoil it all. And so I lay on the bed like this, and the leading lady came on and lay on me, and I don't know how I got through the scene. And he said when it was over, he said, Dickie, you looked in agony. <laughs> I said, I was. <laughs> Why, he said. I said, well, I can't. Could you? I don't. Good heavens, it can't be true. <laughs> the leading lady, because she was not as fulsome as one might have hoped, apparently, in those days, had plaster of Paris breasts. <laughs> So, in agony was absolutely right. <laughs> now, nobody's to go to the cast list. <laughs> Great story. Um, one of the points of these occasions is that it's also, you do feel free to ask some questions. Um, there is a gentleman, yes, waving now. Yes, please do ask. Right, I think that, I mean, that's more of a statement, I think, than a, than a yes. question. I didn't um, hear it all, no, the, because the, I'm, the, the, I'm afraid I'm deaf, and, and the, I didn't the, the, the hear crux it all. Of the, the crux of the statement question was that um, he agreed with you about the pacing of the film. I, I, funnily enough, I disagree, because I think, it's, I think it rattles along. It's only 92 minutes, which, thank God, one wishes more films would like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to take, put words in well, your mind. I, I mean, I really don't know, because I haven't seen it for decades. Uh, but I, I regret the increase of tempo that supposedly is now required. Quentin and I were talking on another matter uh, for, uh, for BAFTA and so on a few days ago, and he asked me the impossible question, as these writers do, what work do you like best uh, that you've done? And, uh, and I said that the film that I've directed that I feel least embarrassed by, or at least worried by, was a film called Shadowlands uh, with Tony Hopkins and Deborah Winger. Uh, I, I decided in that film that I really would not be forced into a tempo which I felt was unjustified in dealing with the depth of emotion and the revelation of characterization between those two actors, and they, in my opinion, were without fault. I thought they were miraculous in the film. And it's much slower. It's, it's the tempo going back to early David. It, it, it's, it's brief encounter tempo. And I think to have attempted to retain it in the current speed of cutting and so on would have wrecked that movie. Now, I don't know whether the majority of people will have found it slow or not. But I do think we have lost something in the cinema. There is something magical, 
which nothing else can give you because of the wonderful atmosphere of coming into this black house with that light at the end there and total concentration which is impossible in television because Granny's putting the cat out or somebody wants another cup of tea or whatever it is so the degree of uninterrupted concentration is not almost impossible to achieve but in the cinema it is and I think it would be very sad if we lost this extraordinary opportunity of being able to say, I remember David Lean saying to me in In Which We Serve, don't be worried that you haven't got any lines. In fact, the most effective shots in any movie is the reaction, not the playing of the line. And I think that cinema, if one can set its own tempo, has an opportunity of creating its own art form which is not possible even in television, and certainly not possible in the theatre. I mean, notwithstanding its, the accusations about its brutality and its viciousness, one of the, I thought, the most remarkable things is the fact that it was shot on location. I mean, yes. 90%, I guess. Yes. Um, usually British films were shot in studios at a fairly funereal pace. Uh, you know, drawing room comedies tended to be the norm. Yes. And this was a very different kind yes. of subject matter. Yes. Can you recall the filming of it at all? Well, I, of course, it was very new to me, you see, mm. Quentin, really. It was, as I say, the second film, I think, that I did after I came out of the Air Force. Before I went into the Air Force, I'd done uh, one, a couple of films, both of which were simply dreadful, but I, I, in which we serve was marvellous to be in, despite the fact that if you blew your nose, you missed me. You know, it was a marvellous, it was a marvellous picture. Um, but it was, as you very properly say, unthinkable that you shot stuff outside. Everything was created in the studios. In fact, next week I'm going to Canterbury because they've got a Michael Powell festival. And my wife, Sheila, was played the lead mm -hmm. in A Canterbury Tale. And that was the first close dialogue scene between Eric Portman and Sheila that was ever shot outside. I mean, that was illustrative of mm -hmm. the point that you're making. Mm -hmm. And John Bolting, all the stuff on the uh, race course that, and all the stuff in Brighton was shot, not in the, on the race course, but in Brighton with hidden cameras. He put cameras in shop windows and so on and so on. All the first stuff at the beginning of the film, uh, all that was shot, Well, and that was revolutionary. And, of course, the Harry Waxman's lighting was so... Because, as you very rightly said, movies at that time were very often merely photographs of, of West End plays, farces sometime. And so if you were playing comedy, the one thing you do was to flood the screen with light. It's like you go to the theatre, you see a comedy. Any comedy is overlit because that is the way you convey the atmosphere and feeling and imagery to the audience. John allowed Harry to have black scenes where you could scarcely see what was going on so that the light in the sequence in the set really did look as if it was generated purely by that candle or by that uh, gas mantle. The reality of that lighting was revolutionary to a certain extent. And uh, Harry Waxman was a, was a terrific cameraman and, and created all sorts of new forms of lighting. Another question over there. Yes, gentleman blue shirt. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Can you give us some... Well, I mean, you've mentioned about the light. Uh, distinct memories of filming Brighton Rock. I mean, it's only 57 years ago, for heaven's sake. To a certain extent, I was very, very apprehensive. John made me, and I'm sure it was a correct criticism of the play, I'm sure the play was ludicrously melodramatic. And John said there's no point in our making the film unless the audience believes, does not necessarily have sympathy, or maybe even just a, a, an iota of it, but believes Pinky. You have to believe that this poor, deformed, ravaged character brought up in particular circumstances of living with his parents and, and wa watching them making love in the same room that he lived in, of this extraordinary Catholicism, devotion and so on. But unless you convince the audience of the truth of this character so that he is anything but a caricature then the movie won't work and so he constantly would reprimand me for playing scenes or lines to effect um, I remember I played a particular line and I played it very OTT sort of whispered in a way and he said, Dick, look, I know perfectly well we've got microphones and everybody can hear you, but that is ridiculous. He wouldn't have said that line in that way at all. I remember him, and I was shattered. I was absolutely sh ashamed of what I'd done. I'd tell that story simply because somebody asks about the memory. And I remember being, I'd only made a movie with John before called Journey Together, uh, again written by, by Terry Rattigan. Uh, and with the genius American actor, Edward G. Robinson. In fact, when Brighton Rock went to America, uh, Edward G. Robinson's great part had been a picture called Scarface, 
and Brighton Rock was called Young Scarface mm -hmm. in, in America. And, and I remember both Edward G. Robinson and John always said, in the theatre you can get away with murder and you are basically a theatre actor, Dick. But in the cinema, if you are not true, if you are not uh, absolutely believable, the movie doesn't work. And so what I remember most of all of that movie was a lesson, was a, was a constant reprimand for departing from the credo of the truth in cinema. I remember, Matt, say something about uh, Journey Together. Y yes. Yeah. Um, I remember playing in this picture and meeting this great man for the first time, Robinson. And in those days, you, you had to hit your marks on the, on the stage absolutely precisely, to within an inch, because you were off your marks. Everything was taped, and the focus and the amount of light required necessitated your absolutely hitting your marks. And if you didn't hit your marks, then you just the director cut the scene, you'd do it again. And Eddie would talk to me, and I would watch him doing this, and uh, while he was talking about all sorts of things, what, no matter what it was, and he kept doing this all the time while we were talking about something else totally. And, and I said, Eddie, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> and he said, well, Dick, don't you understand, with his American accent, uh, don't you understand the truth in cinema acting is absolutely the prerequisite. You can only bring the truth if you bring absolute concentration. You cannot be thinking about anything else. I have to hit that mark, and I know I have to hit that mark. And if I don't hit that mark, the scene will be cut. But I mustn't be thinking for one hundredth of a second, I've got to hit that mark. It must be absolutely automatic to me, because if my mind is worrying about that mark, or worrying about my lines, or worrying about characterization, at a time when you are now performing that particular moment, that particular incident in that story, that person's life, the truth is gone. The camera will sort you out. It will find in your eyes that there isn't an absolute truth. And it was Edward G. Robinson and John Bolting who impressed that on me, I think, more than anything else in the cinema. And the things that I've tried to do in the cinema as an actor I have tried always to find out the absolute fundamental truth of the characterization because there isn't even time for characterization when you're shooting. You've got to do all that beforehand. All you do at that moment is to totally be convinced of that character that you know absolutely in your being under those circumstances. So nothing must interfere with that. That is why all this nonsense about having lines written down on bits of paper and so on around the floor is, 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 is rubbish. You can't manage it unless you happen to be a genius like Brando. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the interesting things that, that one of the questions asked earlier was he, he did mention in the same breath as Brighton Rock, he mentioned Ten Rillington Place yeah. and I mentioned your other epitome of evil, yeah. uh, John Reginald Halliday Christie. Yes. Now, the fact is you haven't played many totally evil roles in your... No. And looking at you now, you can realise why. I mean, you've, you know, Grandpa, 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 Santa, yes. And yeah. Santa, you know, so. <laughs> but even earlier, no. But when you're playing epitomes of evil, how do you find that? I mean, that is, you're not going to say it's just acting. There has to be something beyond that, because you're having to do some pretty unspeakable things in this film. Yes. Um, I mean, what was your motivation? 
Well, I suppose to start with, if I'd been asked to preach, uh, just to play uh, Christie, I'm not sure that I would have done, or I would have accepted it, because I found it almost the most unpleasant thing I've ever had to do. But I am passionately opposed to capital punishment, uh, and there was a private member's bill going to go through the House, and um, Ludo Kennedy mm. wrote a book about Christie, and a great editor called, uh, the Sunday Times editor, um, Harry Evans uh, was editing a provincial paper and took up this cause, and so did a couple of other people. And I'd made a, a film with a man called Dick Fleischer, who was a marvelous director. I played in a picture, silly picture, called Dr. Doolittle. And he, we got him over, and the picture was made virtually for nothing, because most people work for nothing, in order to get this picture out, in case it might have had some impact upon the general public view of capital punishment. So I felt that somehow or another, I had got to find a credibility in playing a character which was almost incredible. And so I, I talked to uh, a number of police surgeons, I talked to a number of psychiatrists who were responsible to, for dealing with him when he finally was arrested and so on, and I talked to people who had studied and written uh, on sub subject, sub subject matter. Now, an actor works basically on, in three ways. He either works simply because what is presented on the page is what he does and it's straightforward and he doesn't have much to add to that. Or he works on his instinct and brings to certain characterizations elements which do not necessarily have any rationale, have any, have any logic to them, it really is intuitive. Or he works from research. And I found that in talking about this man, I've almost, almost found a pity for him. I almost thought, what in God's name, in, on this earth, in what we call a civilized society, what has driven this man? What in sexual perversion, what has, what has dominated this man to this extent? What circumstances were there? And so I tried to find in my research what might have brought about this extraordinary thing. In other words, a total sexual disaster in his youth and so on and so on and so on. But that on top of that, I had to find what you're referring to, which is this intuition, so that if you do lie on top of this girl and you are going to have a sexual assault on her, that there was something with, by the use of this gas thing that you put over his, he put over her face, which gave him an ecstasy that he couldn't, that you couldn't bring a logic to. Now, so there was no way of researching in that. I couldn't find, I had to use, well, I suppose there was, yes, but, I, but, I, but I had to find something which was instinctive to me. So I had to find a, a justification at the back of my mind, almost, in the minutest extent as to what he did. Well, you, you mentioned pity for, for yeah. also for Pinky. Yeah. And oh, that, was indeed. that, was oh, that in a sense the same way? Because it's, oh, it's, not all, it's not all there on the page, and you therefore have yeah. to create 
that awful expression, your own backstory, yes. to provide that, that's impetus yes. for, that, for that evil. Yes. And is that the same, in a sense, the same it process as Christie right. those years you're later? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. My son, Michael, is a theatre director, and he's, uh, he administers, he's artistic director of the Almeida Theatre. And of all the grotesque things to be doing, he is a directing, as of this moment, this is the commercial, is that all right? Go for it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> is directing a musical of Brighton Rock. And uh, John Barry, who wanted to write the music, he always said, to the movie, finally, about a couple of years ago, wrote to Michael and said, I, I've, I never did the movie, but I've written some music from the novel. And what Michael has done is, because he's basically a Shakespearean director, he has used the concept of Shakespearean soliloquy in this musical so that Pinky, whilst ostensibly finding a relationship which he finds distasteful with Rose, actually sings what he's thinking. It isn't like a normal musical, it's a play which uses music for soliloquy. And so, taking it out of Graham's book, from the, now the show that makes done, you, you, you understand, to a certain extent, what has driven him to doing what he is now performing. Time just for a couple more questions. Uh, lady right on the corner here. Yes. The question was, at what stage of your career did you say, I think I've learned enough to direct, now I want to direct? Oh, I didn't ever think that. <laughs> uh, I, I, with my friend Brian Forbes, um, who I bitterly, bitterly regret doesn't work now, hasn't made a movie for 15 or 16 years, but we decided that we were playing all the boring parts and we didn't want to go on playing. And, I was playing either the little spivs or quivering psychopaths on the lower decks of Her Majesty's Navy. <laughs> and, and, and I really felt that... So we, when we went into production and we made a film called The Angry Silence. Um, we made it for £97,000. The only way we could do it was to... Everybody worked for nothing and uh, Kenny Moore was going to play the part that I eventually played in the movie. And about 10 days before we were due to start shooting, Kenny got a wonderful offer of a job where somebody was actually paying him some money. And so he had to do that, and I played in angry silence. But I hadn't intended to. I intended just to produce it. Because then we did the next film, which you mentioned earlier this Whistle evening, Down Wind, yeah. Whistle Down the Wind, uh, which we produced. Then L-shaped room and so on, and, and sales on a wet afternoon. And I was happy as a sandboy, producing and acting. I, I, I loved that. I found, found I had creative input on both sides and I got tremendous satisfaction from it. And then one day, somebody offered me or showed me a biography of Mahatma Gandhi. And I'd never thought of directing, but I, I read this uh, uh, biography convinced that it, I would never understand it apart from anything else. And I came across a scene where Gandhi was in South Africa and he was walking down the pavement with another Indian and towards him came two white South Africans. And as was expected of him, he stepped into the gutter to let the white South Africans go by. 
And after they'd gone by, he said to his colleague, he said, you know, I am always amazed that men should feel themselves honored by the humiliation of their fellow human beings. I thought, my God, that man has made a statement which I find utterly devastating. He was 19. I thought, my God. And I remember I was abroad and I rang up on, on a, you had to put coins in to the man who'd given me the book. He was, a, he was an Indian civil servant. And I finished the book in about a day and a half and I said, Mr. Katari, screaming down the front, Mr. Katari, I can't understand why you've asked me. I've never directed a film. But Mr. Katari, I think it's wonderful. I would love to, I would be honored. I, I really would be over the moon to be allowed to direct your picture. And Mr. Katari, I'll come back. Who else ought we to meet? And he said, oh, there's no one else. <laughs> so I said, well, what do you mean no one else, Mr. Katari? This is your idea. You." You're a civil servant, you're not a filmmaker. No, 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 I know. Oh, I see. Uh, well, um, Mr. Kodari, uh, is there any money for the film? No money, he said. <laughs> and it was true. And uh, we, it took us 20 years 20. to get the money. But the, why did I have to go on to that story? About oh, I know. <laughs> therefore, <laughs> therefore, I wanted suddenly to direct which is the answer to your question. And I went to India in 1962 through an introduction from Lord Mountbatten, whose story of which we serve was the uh, thing I was in. And uh, I was then hooked. Uh, nothing else was going to stop me. I was going to make this film. And one day uh, I came home. I lived in Richmond, as I still do. And on the top of the hill, my great friend Johnny Mills lived. And Johnny left a script at home and uh, said, Dick, read this. I'd love you to be involved, or something worse to that effect. Call me in the morning. <laughs> he knew that I would read something. And then the, the script that he left, more, left for me was, oh, what a lovely war. And I rang him in the morning. And um, I said, God, Johnny, I've seen the play four times, twice in the East End and, and twice at Wyndham's. It's the most. It's a brilliantly achieved piece of work for the cinema. Absolutely wonderful. I'll play anything you ask me. I don't give a what it is. Two lines, I'll be thrilled. Oh, I do congratulate. He said, what are you talking about, Dick? I said, what do you mean? Well, he said, we want you to direct it. I said, Johnny, you're out of your mind. What do you mean? What, what do you want to direct, don't you? Well, I said, yes, I do. I, I want to direct Gardner. He said, well, wouldn't you like to direct this? And I was sort of totally taken aback. And, and I, I said, well, God almighty, Johnny, I, I mean, I think it's one of the great pieces of writing. I, I really think it's a phenomenal piece of work and a very, very important piece of work. But it's a brand new as a, as a m movie and with music. I mean, I, I'd have to think about it. Well, he said, Len and I, and Len was Len Dayton, Len and I debated as to who we should get to direct it. And we decided that we had to go one way or the other. We either had to find somebody who was brand new, who knew, knew nothing about it at all, but might do some exciting things, with whom we'd have to take a terrible risk because of his ignorance, or we'd have to go to somebody who really knew the job and could do something miraculous because we knew they could. And we decided on the former. <laughs> <laughs> so I 
So I, uh, that's how I began doing Oh, What a Lovely War, that I did yes, young. Probably finally, yes. Has your son Michael turned to you for advice um, as he puts together his musical version of? He's a very wise young man. <laughs> he scarcely mentioned it to me. Uh, no, w w it, it's very. Uh, our profession is very difficult for families who find themselves in the same business. And Michael has ploughed his own furrow. He, he went out into the provinces, into Leeds and Birmingham and Watford and then Hampstead. And then he was the as chief associate at the RSC at Stratford. And he did that on his own. In, in the programme, uh, he doesn't even say who his parents are. I mean, he, he, he's absolutely alone. I am about as proud as any father could be because his uh, record at the Almeida during the year that he's been there has been absolutely bewildering. But he has never asked me to see anything until he was ready for me to see it. Then he did ask me, and I saw Bright Rock last week, uh, but that was the first time that he really discussed it with me. And we stayed up till three and four in the morning talking about it, and I did say what I thought, but I, I did it because he asked me. And for him to feel under any obligation whatsoever to have to ask me would be awful. Um, alongside the, the, the music of Brighton Rock, there are actually also plans to remake Brighton Rock itself, the novel, but this time, I believe, set in Brighton Beach, New York. Um, now, I wonder if you felt, I mean, not that you've probably read the book for ages, but do you think the world is ready for another Brighton Rock on film 57 years after what I think is a pretty damn good movie? I don't see the point of remaking it, quite honestly. I'm not in the main in favour of remakes. Uh, it seems to me a rather pathetic... Uh, I mean, you can say, oh, it's uh, the admiration for the subject matter and so on, but in the main, I think there are so many things to do and so many subjects to make and such important stuff which has a contemporary ring or historical which has the contemporary relevance. I wouldn't have thought that was a very good idea. I passionately believe in the importance of the cinema and that the cinema has something, it's not a, not a great art form, but it is an art form. And uh, unless an art form has some statement to make and ha has some attitude, I, it doesn't really work, I don't think. I, I accept absolutely that cinema of necessity is um, a popular medium. It is, as Chaplin created it originally when he first started, uh, it, is a, it is a mass audience uh, 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 medium. And for that, I think, is wonderful and unique. Television has taken over from that to a certain extent, but cinema still maintains its position. And therefore, because it's popular, it must find a mass audience in the main. And therefore, there are X number of movies which I wouldn't wish to be involved in. I don't, I'm not, wish to be part of the pornography of violence and so on that, that flows about all the time now, or indeed the very crude comedies, which I don't think are anything like as good and as exciting and wonderfully funny as the old comedies were. I don't like science fiction very much, but there are certain things that I do care about and I can't write and I don't compose. And 
I make movies now, and the Lord, sweet Lord God, whoever he be, has allowed me to be alive at this time while the cinema exists. Uh, and that to me is, is unutterable magic, and I think that it's very important that there is time for the cry for compassion that I said the other day, and the plea for tolerance, because if there isn't, I think we belittle the genius of the invention of the cinema. Richard Antenbrook. Thanks for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with Lord Richard Attenborough. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do so via Apple Podcasts or Acast or visit barbican.org.uk slash archive. And we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media in all the usual places. Just look for at Barbican Centre. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.